Today's sermon passage is Exodus 28 through 11. It can be found in the Blue Bibles on page 61. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, by most accounts, when taken as a whole, Americans work more and rest less than people in other nations. So according to studies, the average American worker puts in about 47 hours a week compared with 35 hours uh, in places like Germany and Sweden. Most American workers get only two weeks of paid vacation from their employers, and only about 54% of the vacation time allotted to American workers actually gets used in a given year. The average American mother takes 10 weeks off after having a baby before she goes back to work. Uh, As compared to Finland, where pregnant women begin their leave with seven weeks left in their pregnancy and take 16 weeks on average after the birth. It's quite common for American workers to skip lunch or eat lunch at their desks. In places like Spain and Greece, workers expect to be gone for a midday meal for at least an hour. If you add into all of that the ability to work at home, to take calls and emails on the weekend, a picture emerges of a people who are oftentimes feeling burned out from their work, feeling overworked but always forced to do more in order to stay ahead of the curve. Obviously, that's not the case for everyone, but here in Northern Virginia, it does sound familiar. Uh, Life here is expensive. It seems like there's always someone younger, cheaper, hungrier, coming in behind you, happy to take your job if you're not willing to work hard enough and produce enough. On top of that, there's something in the air here in Northern Virginia particularly that just gives a sense that you're not doing enough, that that good enough isn't really good enough, that everyone needs to be extraordinary, that you have to have a better job, a more impressive career, more money, a better house. And so many people, maybe people in this room, certainly the people around us, we're tired. We need rest. We need rest for our bodies, but also rest for our minds and our our hearts and our souls. Rest from the relentless anxieties of life. Rest from having to prove yourself and justify your value. And friends, if that's the case for us, Just imagine how much more the people of ancient Israel needed some rest. If you remember when the book of Exodus opens, uh, Israel was laboring in terrible slavery in Egypt. Uh, In chapter 5, in response to Moses' demand that Pharaoh let the people of Israel go to worship the Lord, uh, Pharaoh decided to increase their workload. When they protested, he replied this way. This is Exodus chapter 5, verse 17. But he, that is Pharaoh, 
But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Israel is laboring under a cruel taskmaster. Same number of bricks with less straw. He was a king whose only concern about them was the work that he could extract from them. Pharaoh was content to drive the people of Israel until they were completely wrung out. And then he was happy to cast them aside. So in that light... What do you think salvation would look like for the people of Israel? Wouldn't you think that it would look like rest? Rest from from their labors and their burdens. How do you think they would hear the fourth commandment? Where God tells them that it would please him. Not that they slave away unceasingly, but that he actually is pleased when his people rest. Well, in order to understand the fourth commandment, which enjoins the people of Israel to observe the Sabbath day, I think it's going to be helpful for us to trace this concept through the storyline of the Bible. And so that's what I'd like to do in this sermon. I would like to start out first by by looking at this idea of the Sabbath before we get to Mount Sinai. So if you've been here in this series of sermons through the book of Exodus, you know the people of Israel, having come, been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, have have been brought by the Lord to Mount Sinai where he is giving them his law. Let's look and see this concept of the Sabbath before this point. Then second, let's let's look at the Sabbath as it is in this commandment and, and how the people of Israel over the course of the Old Testament understood it and responded to it. Then third, I want to look at the Sabbath and its observance in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Here, I think we'll see light shed on what it is the Lord intends for his people in our passage from Exodus 20. And then finally, let's look and see what role the Sabbath observance has had in the life of the New Testament church. That is to say, how did the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, instruct new covenant believers in Christ to observe or to recognize the Sabbath. So that's a lot of ground to cover. We're going to have to move quickly, but my hope is that by the time we're finished, you are encouraged by the goodness of God and particularly the hope of rest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start first by looking at the, at the Sabbath before we get to Exodus 20. So you see here in Exodus 20 verse 8, the the people of Israel are told to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It seems like the expectation is they know what God is talking about. They were familiar with the background. They understood the concept of the Sabbath. So let's get caught up to speed. If you look there in verse 11 of Exodus 20, uh, it says there that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when you go back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, you see that God made the world in six days, six days of creation. 
But significantly, that's not all God did. And that's what our passage from Exodus 20 refers to. So we read in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this. So after six days of creation, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we might be tempted just to sort of brush by that piece of information. Interesting, but maybe not obviously important. But in the larger narrative of the creation that we see in the book of Genesis, this act of rest by God on the seventh day is extremely significant, right? It is a symbolic rest, right? Hopefully you understand that. God, God didn't need a break from his work of creation in the sense that he was exhausted by it, right? God isn't resting on the seventh day because he's worn out. Rather, he rests because it's meant to show us something. In creation, God works over the course of six days to subdue the forces of chaos and bring light and life out of darkness. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 introduces us to a world that is in darkness, without form, void, it says there. But as you travel through chapter 1, by the time you get to chapter 2, you now have a world that is lush and verdant, teeming with life and beauty. God has brought order and life out of the chaos and out of the darkness. And then, as, as a picture of his triumph, as a sign of his accomplishment, God rests on the seventh day. He blesses it and he makes it holy because his work is finished and his purpose has been accomplished. It's significant that the seventh day in the creation narrative is the only one that has no evening. It has no account of its end. So as Genesis tells us about each one of the days of creation, you have this rhythm. God makes something, and then the narrative tells us, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day, the fourth day, whatever day it is. But the seventh day isn't like that. The day that God rests doesn't follow that pattern. The, the Genesis account never tells us about this day ending. The implication is that this rest uh, that God enjoys on the seventh day is enduring, that it's ongoing. So this rhythm of rest is built into the fabric of creation. And the people of Israel were called upon to observe it even before they got to Mount Sinai. So you might remember back in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, we saw that the Lord was feeding his people Israel in the wilderness with miraculous bread called manna. And they were to go out every morning and collect this manna. And, and the point there was that they were to, to be taught to depend on the Lord daily. You only got manna for one day. If you tried to hoard it, it would spoil overnight. Right? The idea was every morning the people of Israel would go out and they would receive from the Lord all that they needed. Except on the sixth day. On the sixth day they were told to collect two days worth so that they could rest on the seventh day. In this case, the manna wouldn't rot overnight. Right? The, the idea was they were being taught to rest on the seventh day. So we read in Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 22. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he's given you bread for two days. Remain, each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So you see this Sabbath command, it was both a gift and also a kind of test for the people. It was a gift in that the Lord called them to rest. He provided all that they needed so that they didn't have to work on the seventh day. It was also a test in that it, it was a call to them to trust him. To trust that they, that they didn't need to work in order to provide for themselves on that day. Observing the Sabbath gives God's people an opportunity to acknowledge that they are not ultimately responsible for their well-being, that they can stop working, stop accumulating, stop advancing, and still be okay. So that brings us then to our second sort of stage in the, the history of redemption as we walk through the Bible. Let's look at, at the Sabbath here in the Law of Moses. That's our passage for this morning, and then the way the people of the Lord responded to it over the coming centuries. So here in Exodus chapter 20, God's people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They've come through the waters of the Red Sea. They've experienced God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. And now God at Mount Sinai is giving them instructions. He's saying, look, I am your God. You are my people. So here's how you live. And if you look closely there in verses 8 through 11 at what's commanded, you see that when it comes to the Sabbath, the people of Israel are given a, a what, a how, and a why. Right there in verse 8, the Israelites are told what to do. They're told to remember the Sabbath. Here we don't want to understand remember as in simply calling to mind the fact that it exists. Like I might remember that I have an appointment tomorrow. No, in this case, to remember the Sabbath is to honor it, to commemorate it, to, to mark it off as a special day. There in verse 8, they're told to remember it by keeping it holy, by, by recognizing that it's a sacred day. It's different from the other six. You see also they're told how to do that. Right? If, they're, if they're told to remember the Sabbath, how are they supposed to do it? Well, there in verses 9 and 10, we're told that they would accomplish that. They would set it aside. They would make it holy by refraining from work. It says there, six days, verse 9, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. According to verse 10, everyone in the community was supposed to rest. There was no distinction. This Sabbath was a gift and a command for everyone. 
master and slave, rich and poor, man and woman, adult and child, native and foreigner, even human and animal. Everyone was called on to observe, to remember the Sabbath day by not working. They were to rest. That's simply what the word Sabbath means in the Hebrew language. It is the word for rest. But this doesn't mean that the the people of Israel were, were to keep this commandment by simply staying in bed all day. It wasn't a command to just take in a movie with the family. Instead, it was, it was a day set aside from work specifically for worshiping the Lord. You see there in verse 10, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's not simply a day of rest. It's a day of rest for the purpose of focusing attention on the Lord. So when you get to Leviticus chapter 23, later on in the narrative, the Lord is giving the people of Israel a rundown of all the feasts that he wants them to keep throughout the year. He's, he's telling them about all the assemblies that, he, that they're meant to have that kind of mark off their calendars. And the very first one that the Lord speaks about in Leviticus 23 is the weekly Sabbath. So it says there in Leviticus 23 verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Your translation might say assembly or gathering. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So this rest is in part intended to provide space for God's people to gather together in an assembly, to gather together for worship. So that's the what of this command. Remember the Sabbath. That's the how, by, by resting and coming together to worship instead of working. And now look at the why. We've already mentioned this, but there in verse 11, we're reminded of, of the creation pattern. The Israelites were to set aside the seventh day, the Sabbath day, because that's what the Lord himself had done. When God created the world, he made it in six days, and on the seventh, he Sabbathed, he rested. God's activity sets the pattern for human behavior. And so the Israelites were to rest in, in imitation of God. Now, as the story, again, progresses on, we get a bit more information about the significance of the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, we see Moses going over this law again with the people of Israel. That's the word Deuteronomy means, basically second law. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses is going over the law again, and when he gets to the fourth commandment, we get the same information. They're, the people of Israel are told to honor the Sabbath by refraining from work, but we get a bit more explanation. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, it says this, in light of the Sabbath, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there's a, there's a kind of fuller explanation of the why of Sabbath observance there. It's not just that the Lord rested on the seventh day, but, but also that he delivered the people of Israel out of terrible toil and brought them into his rest. They had been slaves, laboring endlessly for a cruel taskmaster, and so the Sabbath is a particularly appropriate sign for their deliverance. They were slaves under Pharaoh. Under the Lord God, they rest. 
They would worship God by resting from their labor. So the Sabbath day stood as a sign of the covenant that God was making with Israel at Sinai. Right? When God would make a covenant with his people, an agreement, a, a sort of here's how we're going to operate together, he would often give a symbol or a practice or a sign that would go with that covenant. So the covenant with Noah was accompanied by the sign of a rainbow. The covenant with Abraham was accompanied by the practice of circumcision. And so as God sets in place his relationship, his covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai, he gives them this Sabbath day observance as a sign of their relationship. They're to rest in remembrance of their salvation, their deliverance. So in Exodus chapter 31, the Lord says this to Moses, starting in verse 12. Uh, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath was a sign of their redemption. It was meant to be a day on which God's people would stop their routine, come together as they were able, and celebrate their liberation, their redemption, to celebrate the covenant that God had made with them. It was a day to rejoice. But strangely, as the Old Testament goes along, it doesn't actually take long before people begin to resent these Sabbath regulations. The people of Israel begin to chafe under the restriction. You can understand on one sense, they, they live in a subsistence economy, Losing 14% of your productivity by taking a day off must have seemed in some ways like committing fiscal suicide. But if you flash forward something like 700 years, roughly 600 BC, in Jeremiah chapter 17, we see the prophet rebuking the people of Israel, the people of Judah, for utterly disregarding the Sabbath. He, He rebukes them and condemns them because they're treating the seventh day just like it's any other day. He warns them that the the Lord will not allow this to go unpunished. But sadly, they didn't listen. Their disregard for the Sabbath was a symptom of a much larger disease. They simply didn't treasure the Lord. They didn't care about his salvation. And so the sign of their redemption meant nothing to them. So they, they went to rely on themselves. They wanted that seventh day to get ahead in business. They saw no value of resting in the Lord. And so this same disregard for for God and his ways was manifesting itself in those days in all sorts of other sins, idolatry, violence, deceit, theft. So eventually the Lord sends his people off into exile in Babylon. When he restores them back to the land after decades in exile, it, it seems they still hadn't learned to trust the Lord by observing the Sabbath. So Nehemiah wrote to the people of Judah after their return from exile. He says this in Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. These Israelites intended to be faithful, but as they were helping to rebuild the city and the temple, observing the Sabbath simply seemed like too much. There was so much work to be done. And so Nehemiah warns them, you're, you're following in the same path. You're, you're ignoring the gift of the Sabbath. You're despising this symbol of God's salvation. The people of Israel were meant to keep the Sabbath as an act of joyful worship, but they got caught up in the cares of life and the concerns of the world. Now, before we move on, let me just make two very brief and perhaps obvious observations. First, I think this Sabbath command that we see in Exodus 20, it's meant to remind us that human beings are, are meant to work. That doesn't get a lot of press in these verses, but there is a clear command here to be engaged in work. There in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20, it does say, six days you shall work. Mankind was given work as a gift in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. God at creation shows himself to be a working God, a creating, order-bringing God. And so when he makes Adam and Eve in his image, he gives them work to do. Our work has certainly been made more difficult and painful as a result of the curse that entered the world due to our sin. But work is part of God's good plan for human beings. Our work doesn't have to be in an office building or a construction site. It doesn't even have to be something that you're paid to do, but we are meant to be productive and creative. And so a proper attitude towards the Sabbath perhaps begins with a proper attitude, a proper appreciation for the gift of work. And then second observation, perhaps most obviously, the fourth commandment also shows us the importance of rest. God has, if you will, hardwired rest into the fabric of his creation, into the universe that he's made. Right, friends, that's, that's good news for people in Loudoun County in the year 2022, that God has sanctified rest and called us to value it. He's told us, he's made us to put aside our work and rest and worship. And so we shouldn't buy into the lie that rest is only for weak people or lazy people. There will always be more work to do. It will always be hard for ambitious people to put aside a chance to get ahead and rest. But, but here we see in the creation pattern that it's wise to do so. That we have to have faith in God who created us, who knows what's best for us. That even if we give up some of our work time, he will provide he will take care of us when we honor him with our time by resting in him and worshiping him. More on that and a little bit more later. So let's move on then to the, the third of our four steps and, and look at the Sabbath observance in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So fast forward some six centuries after Nehemiah called the people of Jerusalem to observe the Sabbath. There are a group of religious leaders amongst the Jewish people called the Pharisees. And these folks are serious about keeping God's law. And if you've read the Old Testament, that sounds like really good news. Because as you're reading through the Old Testament, you're just waiting for someone to take God's law seriously. And so the, the Pharisees are, in many ways, supposed to be the good guys. 
They're the ones who do what Israel never really seemed to do. They're fervent about the law of Moses. They love it. They are concerned to keep it. But it turns out the Pharisees are so excited about the law that they've, they've actually made it a heavy burden for God's people. The fourth commandment calls God's people to refrain from work on the seventh day. But it doesn't really define for us much about what work really is. And so to fill in that perceived gap, the Pharisees were happy to add their own rules. They, they developed a long list of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Uh, things that constituted Sabbath-breaking work. So you weren't allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath. That was work. You couldn't untie a knot. That also was work. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't write more than one letter of the alphabet. One letter's fine, two letters work. The Pharisees didn't care that the Sabbath was meant to be a gift to humanity. There was meant to be a celebration of a Lord who, who redeems his people and gives them rest. The Sabbath was meant to make life sweet for men and women, but instead the Pharisees turned it into a kind of prison, just a sort of endless series of things that you might want to do but really can't do. And so it was into this environment that the Lord Jesus came and began to teach and minister on the Sabbath. And it makes sense then that some of the most intense conflicts that the Pharisees had with Jesus came on the Sabbath. The Pharisees complained when Jesus' disciples grabbed grain to feed themselves on the Sabbath. They said, hey, that, that breaks our rule. They complained when Jesus healed a man who was suffering on the Sabbath. They complained when a man who had been healed picked up his pallet and carried it home on the Sabbath. Right? For them, the fact that Jesus didn't care about their Sabbath rules was proof that he was one of the bad guys, that he was a false teacher and a wicked man. For the Pharisees, the rules were the point. But the Lord Jesus taught that the point of the Sabbath was that it was meant to be a blessing that it was meant to be a source of life and peace to God's people, not a, a list of regulations so complex that you needed a, an advanced theology degree just to know whether or not you were breaking them. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has a dust-up with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, and we read this in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, that is the Pharisees, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So notice two things Jesus is saying there. He says that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a gift and a blessing. It was never intended to be the point in and of itself. So that a suffering man should have to suffer an extra day. Because you can't heal him on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never meant to make sure that hungry people couldn't reach out their hand and take the food that they needed. Right? It's an important data point for us as we think about the Sabbath. Whatever it is and however it's meant to be observed, it should be a blessing and not a burden. Second, Jesus states that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? It's hard to overstate what he's saying here. Right? To whom does the Sabbath and its observance belong? Yahweh, the Lord God. It's a celebration of his rest. It's a celebration of his creation and redemption. He's the one who instituted it. 
He's the one who commanded its observance. All through the Old Testament, when he speaks about the Sabbath, uh, Yahweh calls it my Sabbath. And so here Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? I am Lord over the Sabbath. The idea is that he is the one who has the right and the insight and the authority to declare the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath day. He's saying it points to me. It finds its fulfillment in me. And friends, the Pharisees did not miss what he was saying. They were not confused. They understood that he was claiming privileges and authority that belong only to God himself. So in John chapter 5, you can read there about a confrontation that they have with Jesus over the Sabbath. And they, they plot from that point on to kill him because they understand that he's making himself equal with God. And ironically, that plot to kill Jesus there in John chapter 5, it sets in motion the events through which the Lord Jesus fulfills the purpose of the Sabbath. Because it's in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God and the Lord of the Sabbath, it's through his death as he bears the weight of his people's sin and guilt on the cross, as he takes on himself their shame and their guilt and their condemnation, as he endures the punishment for everyone who would ever trust in him for salvation. It was there that Jesus suffered to put away all of the things that keep us, keep our souls from really being truly at rest. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He ascended into heaven. And friends, now he offers salvation to anyone who wants rest for their soul. Anyone who will turn from their sin and put their trust in him. There's nothing for us to do in terms of work. God's salvation comes to us as a Sabbath rest. There is nothing for us to do in order to earn this salvation. Jesus did all the work. He did everything necessary. Friend, the God of rest doesn't call you to come and try to work hard enough to earn his love. He gives you his love as a free gift through his son. And so anyone here today who is burdened, who is weighed down by guilt or loneliness or insecurity, anyone who is at the end of their rope and ready to give up the fruitless quest to be good enough to earn God's love, anyone who's exhausted from trying to prove your worth through being successful in your career, or making the most money, or being the smartest, or, or being the best mom. Anyone who finds themselves longing for rest can find it in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. When you come to him, all of his goodness, all of his work on the cross is credited to you. And so you can rest Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, when we step back, I think we see that Jesus has fulfilled the point of and has transformed the fourth commandment. 
the point of the fourth commandment is the same as the point of the gospel. That you would find rest, not just for your body, but for your soul in belonging to God through Christ. If we think about the fourth commandment and we just focus in on, on one day a week and whether or not it's okay to watch football on Sunday or whether I can work on a Saturday, I think, though those are perhaps noble things to consider, I fear that we will have missed the much larger point. God's ultimate goal is not that you and I should have one day's respite from our burdens and toils. God's ultimate purpose is that through Christ, he would bring us into an experience of rest that would come into fullness in eternity itself. God invites people into his eternal Sabbath, his permanent rest through faith in Christ. So let's move on then and see our fourth and final stage as we walk through the Bible. What, what role then did the Sabbath and its observance have in the New Testament church? How did the apostles, under the inspiration of the Spirit, instruct Christians to, to relate to the Sabbath? How should we relate to this Sabbath command? It's interesting, as Christianity spreads out to the Gentile world, where there is, in the first century, no real sense of Sabbath observation whatsoever... You have more and more people coming to faith in the New Testament uh, who would have had no experience with the idea of taking a day of rest. And so you'd expect the apostles to spend a lot of time explaining the importance and the significance of Sabbath observation. Again, this had been the sort of key linchpin of, of, of Judaism ever since the days of Moses. You'd think the apostles would talk a lot about the, the significance and the meaning and how to observe the Sabbath. But instead, when you get to the New Testament letters to the churches full of Gentiles who have no idea about the Sabbath, what you get is crickets, silence, no indication whatsoever that the New Testament church observed the seventh day in any sort of special way. In fact, the only word we read about the matter is in the is in uh, Colossians chapter 2, where Paul instructs the church this way in Colossians 2 verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, Christian, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul seems to be saying that what we said just a moment ago is correct, that the, the weekly Sabbath observation of the Jews was not meant to be an end unto itself. It wasn't meant to be an everlasting prescription, but it, instead it was meant to be a, a shadow, a, a hint, a, a foretaste of the rest that we find as believers in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In this sense, the Sabbath principle of rest for God's people has been accomplished it's been realized, it's been magnified in the coming of Jesus. And the specific observation of the seventh day as a day of rest seems to be something relegated to the, the Mosaic Covenant and doesn't apply to us as New Testament believers. And so what we see is that instead of setting aside the seventh day, so what we would think of as Friday night into Saturday uh, during the day, instead of setting aside the seventh day for rest and worship, the New Testament church begins actually to meet on the first day of the week, on what we call Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. That's the day they gather for fellowship and worship. You see in Acts chapter 20, Luke uh, says this. He says, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So for our purposes, just interesting there that the church is gathered on the first day of the week. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we saw this some months ago when we were considering that letter. Paul writes to the church about the collection he's taking up. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. It seems that Paul expects that the church will be gathering together on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And so he wants them to put aside some money each Sunday. It seems the normal pattern is for Christians to gather on Sundays for worship. Uh, Justin Martyr, a, a second century church leader, wrote in the very early 100s AD about Christians and their practice of gathering on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. He said, we gather on the first day of the week on the Lord's Day for readings from the scripture. We sing, we pray, we have a sermon, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right, pretty much exactly what we're doing today, pretty much exactly what Christians have marked, uh, done to mark off the Lord's Day for the last 2,000 years. And so if you pull it all together, it seems like we should understand that the fourth commandment is fulfilled in Jesus in a way that means that observing the seventh day is not binding on believers in the New Testament the way it was in the Old. That is to say, to make it explicit, it's not a sin to work on Saturday. However, there is wisdom in recognizing how the Lord has created the world with this pattern of work and rest. It would be foolish to try and row against the current of creation by constantly working and never resting. And so we should stop and recognize this New Testament pattern of gathering on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and to see that it is a wonderful gift to us, that it's meant to be a time of refreshment and rest for our souls. In that sense, what we're doing together right now is a kind of Sabbath. It is a kind of rest. This day is a day of rest, not because we're not allowed to do any work at all, but because it's a time set aside in the sort of grind of daily life where we can set aside the stresses and pressures and exhaustions of daily life a time where we can come in from a world where Christ is not known, not loved, not honored. A day where we can come in and fellowship and remember and celebrate our deliverance and our salvation together. I think that probably means two things for us. First, it means we may need to tweak our understanding of rest. I tend to think of rest as doing nothing. Sleeping in, sitting by the pool, watching TV, right? Those things can be restful. There's a place for those things in our lives. But if that's the only kind of rest that you can imagine, then I, I guess that coming to church probably feels like a burden, not like rest. And if that's your only sort of understanding of what rest could possibly look like, I'm sure you won't want to come back again this evening because you've got work on Monday and you need time to rest. But I think what we need most is rest for our souls. And that rest comes from drawing close to the Lord Jesus, from hearing his word, praying, singing his praises, celebrating his supper together. We find a rest in that that might be a little bit harder to perceive at first, but a rest which is absolutely essential to our spiritual well-being. So brothers and sisters, let's not come to corporate worship as if it's another task to be checked off your to-do list. Come 
expecting to rest. Uh, Second, I think this means that we need to make sure that our, our gatherings together on Sundays, in the morning and in the evening, are really marked by the kind of rest that our souls need. We need to come together and to be reminded of the good news. That even though you're far more sinful than you probably thought, you are also far more loved than you ever would have imagined. We need to come together and hear from the scriptures the glorious truth that our worth is not measured in our possessions, that our value is not found in our accomplishments, in our goodness, in our achievements, but our value is set and fixed and measured according to the bountiful and unmerited love of God shown to us in Christ. So that means that we need to strive to be a community where it feels like rest to walk in here where you walk in here knowing that you are loved and accepted and delighted in, not for what you've accomplished, but because of the one you belong to. We need to come on Sundays and be reminded that the things that exhaust us, the suffering, the sadness, the sin, those are the temporary things. We need to come and be reminded that we are on our way to a world made new, a land of perfect rest. And that's probably a good place for us to leave it this morning. The author of Hebrews understands that this Sabbath rest that God promises to his people is something that we enter into now when we turn aside from relying on our good works and put our trust in him. So as we read earlier in our service, Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 9 and 10 says this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so let's celebrate that Sabbath rest this Lord's Day together as a church family by coming to the Lord's table now. It's here at the table that we celebrate and remember Jesus' sacrifice. We remember that he was crucified so that we might have rest. Here in the bread that represents his broken body and in the cup representing his blood shed for us, we have a picture of the gospel message, the message that's right at the heart of Christianity, that in his love, God has done all of the work so that we might rest in him. We enter into this rest now in this life by experiencing the grace and forgiveness that God gives us in Christ. God doesn't come to you with a list of demands and rules, ways that you need to get right before you can come to him. The Lord's Supper shows us that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. There is no gap left for us to fill, no work for us left to do before we're acceptable to God. And the Lord's Supper shows us that we don't have to strive and accomplish in order to continue on in fellowship and friendship with him. He doesn't say, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to experience my salvation, you've got work to do. Instead, what you get is an invitation. Come, eat and drink at my table and find rest. Brothers and sisters, what good news. That when Jesus gave us a weekly reminder of his salvation, he gave us not a weekly performance review, not a weekly test of strength, not a weekly endurance challenge, 
but he gave us a meal. What does it mean to rest in Jesus? Come, eat and drink at his table. Now before we come to the table, let's take a moment to examine our lives. The Apostle Paul encourages the church at Corinth to do just that. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is for all those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ. For those who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized and who are connected to a church that preaches the same gospel you've heard here this morning in membership. Jesus' invitation to his table is very gracious. It's not a call for the best of us to come forward and have fellowship. It's not an invitation for you to earn uh, his love through your good deeds. But you come on the basis of his goodness. And so if you've had a bad week, if you've sinned, if you're discouraged, if your faith feels frail, if you don't feel at rest, come to the table. Here you're reminded that the Lord loves you and welcomes you despite your sin. But the Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. So if you know that you're not a Christian, then we'd urge you not to participate in this part of our service in terms of coming forward, but rather think about your need for a Savior. Think about why it is that Jesus had to die for our sins so that we could have rest. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but your life is marked by sin that you have no intention of turning from, if you insist on holding on to bitterness and hatred against a brother or sister in the body of Christ, then before you come to the table, do what Christians do. Turn from your sin. Confess it to the Lord and, and turn your back on it. And only then come to the table. This is a meal for sinners. It's a meal for repentant sinners. And so let's take a moment to confess our sins together to examine ourselves as the Apostle Paul tells us, and then we'll sing and celebrate. We'll have a moment of a silent reflection and confession, and then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer of confession. Let's pray.